Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. In today's episode, we'll be revisiting a fantastic conversation with Kim Scott. Kim is a Noongar man from Western Australia. He's twice winner of the Miles Franklin Literary Award for his novels Benang and That Dead Man Dance, and his most recent novel, the, the subject of our conversation today, is Taboo. My name is Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER on Gadigal Land in Sydney. We explore books, writing, and literary culture. Now, Great Conversations brings you more of these discussions and helps you discover more of the best of Australian writing. Now, Taboo is this extraordinary ensemble novel, and it tells a story of invasion and dispossession as a group of Noongar people return to their land and it's been considered taboo since the massacre of their people. The novel explores the connection to land that's felt by traditional owners and how generations of separation have not dimmed their connection. It's an extraordinary book, and it's a really exciting opportunity to discover something of the Noongar culture and language, a language and culture that was threatened with destruction at the hands of colonial invaders, a language and culture that has ultimately prevailed. I thought it was just this extraordinary ensemble novel. The, the characters you've created are amazing. And I really wanted to start with the novel's opening, which you know is also it's conveniently its conclusion. And I, I was really interested in the way you play with tropes and stereotypes in those first few pages. Uh, you seem to be invoking fairy tale. There's sort of a zombie horror element, elements Thank of you, yeah. magical realism, the animated skeleton that seems to walk, a dramatic out-of-control careering vehicle, and there's that farcical turn where the character that we don't yet know, he's just a well-dressed man fleeing the scene. Each of these moments, though, they, they set up and then they thwarted my expectation of what Taboo might hold. But what about for you, for, for the weight of expectation? How does that help you or hinder you as a writer? Uh, uh, that's a, yeah, yeah, that's, look, that's a wonderful opening, Andrew. I thank you for that. Um, expectation, yes, look, it's a privileged position to be in and I shouldn't complain. But, yeah, it's, it's, I'm, I'm prone to sort of anxiety, it's a trifle of... And... Uh, so I think, it, and there's a lot, you may notice there's a long time between novels, and I think that's something to do with expectation uh, hindering me a little bit. Mm. Yeah. But I, I thank you for that, um, yeah, the comment on the opening pages. That's the zombie bit particularly. That's not everyone sees that. I wonder, um, I wonder yeah, though, about the when you set that up, whether you're feeling a need to follow in a in a particular vein or genre or setting it up particularly allows you scope to do whatever you want because there are these there are so many openings yeah yeah no it's look i don't believe it's um following in in a uh, something that's already been done or anything mm. it is uh yeah, I suppose in the drafting it might be me searching a little bit, but I am thinking about reader expectations, and I want to because I particularly because I have that quitter that appears, and I have to I have to enable that as I see it. So, and uh, I haven't written I don't think I've written a contemporary novel before, a novel set in contemporary time. Um, 
And I've worried a bit about doing that because of social realism, meaning that you end up wallowing in um, the uh, two apparent empirical realities of in Indigenous life, the, all the bad social indicators and the sensationalising some of that. So I've got a bit of that in the novel, I think, but particularly because I'm, I'm, I'm sorry this is a clumsy answer, but I, I, I wanted to, yes, not wallow in social realism, not be bogged down in that, and I wanted to set up some sort of possibilities of mythic resonances around what I was doing, the ancient language, the community returning to place. So the biblical reference early on, the little fairy tale business, the, the genre hopping generally was to try and enable that in my mind. How does that go as an answer? Oh, that was a great answer. Can I follow you up there on this idea of returning sure. to place? Because Taboo, yeah. it's, it's really about that, uh, both a return to place but a coming together. You have a, a yeah. group of... Uh, actually, can I start? I wanted to, want to check pronunciation. Before. Is it pronounced Noongar? Uh, Noongar. Noongar, sorry. The, yeah. it's and that, some people would, would say it Noongar. Nunga. Nunga's all right. Nunga. It's it's yeah, that um right. yeah it's that palatal nasal that always gets me there. So yeah, Nunga. Yeah. So taboo is it's about a coming together and a return. A group of Nunga people gathering in Kepalup for a commemoration of a peace park. There's this idea that it's an initiative designed to heal relationships between black and white for years of brutal history. The land that they're returning to is considered taboo for the massacres that have been committed there. And you also unfold the damage that's been inflicted on the land through the book uh, as fertile ground was cleared, ultimately made barren. I was hoping, though, you could help me understand a little bit more this, the, the role of, and place of land in the story. Yes, yes. Look, it certainly is people returning to ancestral country and they're damaged by history and there's non-Aboriginal characters in the same sort of plight, in a way, damaged by our history. Um, and there's healing and transformation, I would add, that occurs because of that communal return. Uh, yeah, place, that, as you've indicated, yeah, I, I, um, I also do some gothic stuff, I think, in terms of the landscape, not mm. only a, an individual female character, but the landscape being hostile, and then I turn that around over the course of the novel. Uh, the, the stress put on language and those people returning to place is all about... Mani I'm try trying to play with manifestations of the spirit of place in uh, an Aboriginal sense. So language is, is a clear part of that, I think, in the novel. But so are all those individuals that are living there are manifestations of the spirit of place. Perhaps including the non-Aboriginal characters. So the reconciling, for want of a better word, and the working out of relationships, not only with one another, but with place and the place's cultural heritage, are all part of what I'm exploring, I think. Yeah, language plays an incredibly important role in Taboo, and there are a couple of threads that I wanted to, to pick up as you've you've touched on there, we travel through the landscape of the novel and different characters enrich their scenery, naming, and this is particularly, I found, for, for Tilly, who we ha haven't touched on a lot yet, but they're naming traditional sites, features and animals, helping to teach her about her land, her place that she doesn't really 
fully yeah. understand. What, though, does... This is a very contemporary debate uh, around the loss and revival of language do for you in shaping the narrative of taboo? Uh, what does it do for me in shaping the narrative? I don't use much Noongar language, I'd say. I, I noticed that, yeah. Yeah, i say the ancient tongue, the old people, the way the old people talk, etc., etc. Um, that's partly because there's many uh, endangered or frail Aboriginal languages across the continent, and I want to be talking about all of them in, in a way. I also want to, want to uh, emphasise strategically a parallel between this continent's ancient languages and those more prevalent in the Northern Hemisphere and what they have made to uh, culture, what difference they've made to cultural renaissance. Um, and this may connect to your question about place previously. Mm. So, for instance, if I am correct in thinking that some sort of European cultural renaissance occurred hundreds of years ago with, with people uh, following people digging up uh, broken statues and shards of pottery and rediscovering and reclaiming ancient languages or languages, um, what might that mean here when, when it's not just broken statues and pottery shards we're digging up its landscape as text for some of these stories so that's part of what I'm playing with and of course I, I am deeply involved contingent to writing this novel the last couple of novels with a language cultural consolidation revitalization project the Willem and Noongar language and stories project which informs um, this novel and I've seen ways in which Recovering and sharing language can transform uh, power relationships and can give people, can give us a different narrative to talk about uh, what it means to be living here and to talk about our history in a different sort of way and to do something other from an Aboriginal perspective, a Noongar perspective, something other than just a sort of reactive, trapped uh, yeah, narrative. And I found running through taboo and juxtaposing this revival of Noongar languages, but also the broader uh, discussion around revival of languages and revival of culture, we have the way the English language, the way white language occupies a place that is deeply unsettling. So we've got Dan Horton, he's the the white farmer, he occupies the traditional lands where the local Aboriginal people were massacred generations before. But throughout the novel, you, you have him he's continually evincing this dis discomfort at the use of the word massacre. He sort of keeps sort of saying things along the line of, I wish you wouldn't use that word, I don't like that word. Whilst he, he does seem to acknowledge the wrongs that were done. How powerful is this language in the discussion? Do you have any thoughts on why it's so hard for people to use words like massacre and to face it? Yeah, well, I guess it's it's certainly psychologically unsettling yeah it's he's trying Dan is trying really hard um, and everyone is a little bit trapped in the narratives of guilt and victimhood and I, I guess it's it is very hard just to, to say it was a massacre to admit the mm -hmm 
uh, extent of the atrocity. Um, the other languages that people are working with, the other language that people are working with in this story, they probably can say it, um, even though it might mean the same thing. It's just because of the resonances to do with guilt and evil, particularly, that flow from massacre is what Dan has trouble with. And he, he, he struggles, as many of us do, just to confront, uh, if not the truth of history, then certainly other valid perspectives on it. Mm. Kim, I'm really conscious of the time, but I think I'd be remiss if I didn't talk a little bit and ask you a little bit about Tilly. Tilly is the, the brave and resilient character at the centre of your story. I found it was, it was perhaps easy to see her as representing a new generation who brings hope, but she's also scarred by her own story. Uh, you brought me back to ideas of, of fairy tale and the gothic, where so many young protagonists are, are captured and suffered at the hands of truly evil characters. If I think about fairy stories we're brought up with, we, we always forget how horrible the things that happen. Um, in such a rich ensemble, Castle, what what was Tilly's role for you? What were you hoping to convey through her? Uh, there's a number of things about the the strength the strength you gain one can gain from reconnecting with a uh, ancestral country heritage and a home community of descendants. Um, the importance of people doing that, particularly young people, and the narrative it offers them. I was also working with, um, again, in the Wheelman Project, a level of some of the things that recur as sort of motifs or mm. archetypes. One is a pro young protagonist journeying alone away from home and family and returning, enriched because of the challenges and contests she, she or he has succeeded in returning enriched and better able to contribute to their home community. That's something I, I have till he go through in a way. And also another recurring sort of motive in many older Noongar stories that I know is of a, ca a character being killed, in fact, through in those sort of contests with evil, a, a devil character normally. And, um, with, to cut to cut it short, being uh, brought back to life by another community member with their breath, often with their language, and certainly through their companionship. So it was those yeah, those sort of things. I think I was. I never intended Tilly as the central character, um, but that's how things work. So that's how I was. That's the sort of things I was playing with. I think. Her story's really rich and multifaceted. You, you, we have several iterations of her, and I think you play around with the way you present who she is with the, this sort of disjointed mm -hmm. timeline. But there's a, there's a point sort of later in the book where we're, we're joining Tilly at the, the school that she goes to, and there's an Aboriginal support officer, Maureen, who mm. I wasn't sure if she was meant to be a, a sort of a farcical character. Uh, she's completely ridiculous but kind of horrifying in the way that she mm. keeps expecting the students to perform their aboriginality and telling them what is what is right and what is wrong in tilly's story were you trying to complicate i guess a, a very colonial white idea that somehow aboriginality is only one thing yeah yeah no she represents there's a lot of my from my perspective 
there's quite a lot of expectation on people, uh, you know, notions of authentic Aboriginality. And uh, sometimes it's people in ignorant but nevertheless privileged in different ways that want to articulate those and want to see some of us uh, conforming to them. Um, so that's... And the, and the the dangers and reductionism in that is what I was playing with there. So you have someone like Tilly, vulnerable, uh, insecure at this stage about her, who she is, and then you have, have others who've got no right to be articulating it, telling her how she should be as an Aboriginal person. Yeah, I, I thought it was farcical, satirical, with a nasty edge to it, mm. that character. That is it for this great conversation with Kim Scott. The novel we were discussing is Kim's most recent. It is Taboo. Kim is a two-time Miles Franklin winner. He is a Noongar man from Western Australia. Now, Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. If you want to hear more great conversations from Final Draft, just hit subscribe in iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast. It's NAIDOC week this week if you're listening in real time, and we are giving subscribers a special treat featuring conversations from such fantastic Indigenous authors as Alexis Wright, Kim Scott and Claire G. Coleman. Subscribe and get these stories delivered straight to your phone every single day. If you want to keep up with the latest books, writing and literary culture, you can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back tomorrow with more great conversations and every week on Final Draft. See you then.